This is Guns and Butter. So the idea that these people were somehow involved in this other project, which was developing the biological weapon, you've got crossover of people, you've got Oshner in charge of the operation going on in David Ferry's apartment and Mary Sherman's apartment, and all that stuff is being exposed to radiation back at the uh, U.S. Public Health Service Hospital uh, in front of the linear particle accelerator in the infectious disease lab. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Edward T. Haslam. Today's show, Dr. Mary's Monkey, Part 2. Edward Haslam is an author and researcher. He spent the first 35 years of his life in New Orleans. His father was a surgeon and taught at the Tulane Medical School, where he was a colleague of Dr. Mary Sherman, a pathologist, orthopedic surgeon, and one of the top cancer researchers in America. Ed Haslam personally heard and saw things that involved the investigation into the Kennedy assassination, the murder of one of his father's colleagues, and claims of biological weapons to be used for political purposes. In 1969, he commented that, if there is a bizarre global epidemic involving cancer and monkey virus 30 years from now, at least we'll know where it came from. In the 1980s, he stumbled upon hard evidence connecting people involved in the JFK assassination investigation to the medical community in New Orleans. He is the author of Dr. Mary's Monkey. We should talk about Dr. Alton Oshner and the Oshner Clinic. Who was Dr. Oshner? Now, he figures very heavily in your book of the murder of, of Dr. Mary Sherman. Actually, he was Mary Sherman's boss, wasn't he? Yeah, he was the president of the Oshner Clinic, president and founder. And um, he was also the chief of surgery at Tulane Medical School, which he was appointed to that position when he was 29 years old. His uncle was uh, A.J. Oshner, who founded the American College of Surgeons and, and ran a couple of hospitals, um, was chief of surgery, a couple of hospitals in Chicago, and had arranged for Alton to go to Switzerland to um, do his residency over there and train underneath the Swiss surgeons, who were the best of the day. And um, Oshner spoke German because of all that, and uh, you know he used his German in Switzerland. And he came back, and he actually only taught for one year at the University of Wisconsin before being appointed chief of surgery at Tulane. And throughout World War II, he was doing stuff with the Navy and trying to inoculate the Marines against malaria and stuff like that. And um, he did special studies and things for the Air Force and the um, U.S. Public Health Service. So he's got this long history of covert relationships. But he's he's got connections in other places. And in 1942, I think it is, he decides to start the Oshner Clinic. And uh, one of the things that um, I'll kind of weave into this, because we're on the 1942 subject when the Oshner Clinic starts, um, I started saying, where did this polio epidemic come from in the first place? And I got the um, graphs from the CDC, and they're in the new book. And the polio epidemic, what we call of the 1950s, actually starts in 1943. 
it starts right after something happens in 1942, and it just erupts in 43, goes, jumps into over 10,000 cases a year, goes up to 57,000 cases a year, and doesn't come back down to under 10,000 cases a year until in the 1960s. And what happens in 1942 is they introduce antibiotics. And this is right at the time Oshner starting his clinic. And he gets his hospital on the grounds of a um, decommissioned military base. So that's kind of like he's got some kind of contacts going on there. And then when they're ready to do the big hospital, uh, there's something going on called the Hill Burton Fund. And he, Admiral um, Sansfield Turner, who was director of the CIA, testified about this. And so the CIA helped finance 159 hospitals in the United States for some reason. And what they were doing is the CIA would arrange for um, people, example, Clint Murchison, to put up like half a million dollars as seed money. And then once they had that as a down payment, they were able to get their mortgage from Congress with this Hill Burton thing. And the concept of Oshner had was that his hospital would take care of all the rich people in South America. And because Tulane had a good reputation down there, because New Orleans was a big port of trade, the CIA was all over the place in New Orleans. And so you have the Oshner Clinic, uh, the big building today has 19 flagpoles out in front, and on those 19 flagpoles are the flags of all the countries of uh, Central and South America. So that their oligarchy, the moment they get sick, they jump on a jet plane and fly to New Orleans and get taken care of. And so Oshner was in the middle of that. Um, the, the business of New Orleans was trade. He was president of International House. He was, I mean, he was just in, in charge of just about everything you could possibly be in charge of in New Orleans that had anything to do with trade or medicine. And so he's in the middle of all this. And when Castro comes along, he becomes like a fanatic anti-communist and starts talking about communism is spreading like a disease. And as a surgeon, he knows how fast you must act. And he starts this thing called Inca, which is an anagram for the Information Council for the Americas. Essentially, it's a propaganda mill. And they're going to send radio tapes to stations all down in South America about the evils of communism and how to resist being taken over and all that stuff. And this is the same organization that produces the record album of the radio interviews with Lee Oswald. Okay. Didn't they also produce a film called Hitler in Havana? They did. It was it was an embarrassment, but they they did. Ed Butler produced that. And um, the guy from the New York Times who reviewed it said it was, you know, kind of a an insult to the lowest levels of journalism. And um, again, it's the fanatical stuff. Butler, uh, who was the executive director of Inca, was a army propaganda officer when he was in the army, you know. And um, he reigned in that, but it's all from the kind of the military perspective on how you set up propaganda. And um, Butler, Bill Moynihan, who was Judy's boss over at the Riley Coffee Company, Alt Noshner, and a, a couple other people like Clay Shaw and um, and the guy that owned WDSU Radio and Television were the core people at Inca. And you also had this um, this strange thing that Inca had a head of security. I mean, when you read the masthead of who's involved in Inca, and his name was Robert Reynolds. And Robert Reynolds was the president of the 
I'm not going to get the words right here, but the idea is clear. The past special agents of the FBI, okay, the National Association of Past Special Agents of the FBI. So that person is involved with Oshner at Inca, and Inca brings people into town for speeches. One of the people they brought into town for speeches was the uh, Florida Senator Smathers, um, who's, you know, a big part of Kennedy's space program, which is why Cape Canaveral and all that stuff's in Florida. And another person they brought in was Herbert Philbrook, the um, I Led Three Lives guy who played the role of a, um, a spy infiltrating communist organizations for the FBI. And he was one of Oswald's heroes, and they would bring him in for a speech and for people to see. And at any rate, what Inca was really up to... Um, I can't really tell you, but what I can tell you is I personally was in Inca one day. And that's where I saw Guy Bannister's files. That's in the book, okay? And the guy who was showing me around um, made a comment that really uh, spoke volumes to me. Ed Butler was right there, and, and, and this, this old guy sort of popped out of a secret door in the wall. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was strange. And, and Butler was just astonished and said, where did you come from? And he said, I didn't know there was a door back there. And the guy laughed and said, there's a whole bunch of stuff about this organization you don't know. And, and, and that's interesting because Butler was the executive director of the organization. So something was going on with those guys. Well, you're, we're talking about a right-wing medical political alliance in New Orleans in the 1960s, right? Correct. That's exactly what it was. And um, so the idea that these people were somehow involved in this other project, which was developing the biological weapon, you've got crossover of people, you've got Oshner in charge of the operation going on in David Ferry's apartment and Mary Sherman's apartment, and all that stuff is being exposed to radiation back at the uh, U.S. Public Health Service Hospital. Uh, in front of the linear particle accelerator um, in the infectious disease lab. Well, back to Mary Sherman. You remember this is an investigation of the death of Mary Sherman. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out where that particle accelerator was. And when we finally found it on the grounds of the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital and, and got the description of what it looked like and stuff, it was then I realized that what had happened to Mary Sherman. She had got electrocuted at the uh, linear particle accelerator at the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital. And it was a 5 million volt machine, and she grabbed something with her right hand that was full of electricity, probably the off-on switch. And she was standing in front of the steel wall that they had put in there, and there was a big cable grounding the steel wall. And so what happened was this enormous amount of electricity just burned out her arm like it was a fuse. I mean, just blew it out. And because she was standing in front of the steel wall, the electricity went through her rib cage and out her back into the wall. It did not go down her feet and blow off her feet. And that's what normally happens in these kind of uh, high-voltage electrocutions because uh, the electricity wants to go to the ground. Well, what about the secret experiments using a linear particle accelerator to mutate monkey viruses? What is a linear particle accelerator, and where did you say it was located? 
A linear particle accelerator, if you think of the atom smashers and the cyclotrons and, and those sorts of things, a linear particle accelerator generates a beam of radiation. And today, their clinical use today is they burn out tumors. So when people get their tumors burned out for one reason or another, it's from radiation and it's being generated by a linear particle accelerator. These things were first developed in the uh, 1930s. And they were developed um, mostly out of Boston by uh, Van de Graaff, who developed the Van de Graaff generator, but he became a professor of... Um, engineering and electricity at MIT in Boston. And um, he and Livermore and those guys developed these machines. We've got pictures of them in the book. And the one in New Orleans is exactly like the one in London. You remember Mary went to London that day. Um, Because they have beams that shoot down vertically to the ground so you don't fry your neighbor's cat. But down at the bottom of there, they put a platinum pyramid. And the purpose of the platinum pyramid was to uh, deflect the beam into equal doses so that you could put a bunch of test tubes around it and expose, say, eight test tubes to the same amount of radiation at the same time. Now, why they were doing this, and I kind of skipped over this when we were talking about polio, but there were like three flavors of polio. I'm going to call them heavy, medium, and light. And the only one that really killed and crippled uh, children was heavy. Okay, so Jonas Salk said, all you got to do is defuse heavy and uh, you can make a vaccine. So he said, let's drown heavy, polio heavy in formaldehyde um, to kill it, and then we'll inject these children with the dead polio viruses. Um, I'm not commenting on the wisdom of that scheme, but that is what's known as the dead virus vaccine, and that's what was in the Salk vaccine. That backfired. In fact, what happened was, um, and this story is important to the story, um, in April of 1955 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, the um, March of Dimes had a big press conference there where they were announcing the results of the Francis uh, polio trials, which means they were testing the polio vaccine on kids before they approved it and officially released it. But they came back and said, hey, this is safe. It's uh, effective. It's proven. Everybody get ready. Roll up your sleeves. We've got a new vaccine to stop polio. And then they turned to Bernice Eddy, MD, PhD, who was the vaccine safety, the official vaccine safety tester for the United States government. She worked over at NIH. And they said, Dr. Eddy, approve this stuff. And she took the vials of the polio vaccine they were about to release back to her lab, injected it into her monkeys, and she got back on dead and crippled monkeys. And um, she said, look, there's a problem with this vaccine. I don't know what it is right now. And it's all coming out of this one batch from the cutter at laboratories. And so um, you, uh, if you don't do anything else, you need to pull the cutter um, batch because that's where the problem is coming from. And, and Cutter well, Laboratories was in Berkeley, California, right? Uh, yes, but their major stockholder was Alton Oshner from New Orleans. I'm speaking with author and researcher Edward Haslam. Today's show, Dr. Mary's Monkey, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And so when um, Cutter was informed of the problem, Oshner was outraged, and he said, you know, he was head of um, 
surgery too at the time and he called the faculty together in the amphitheater and my father and Mary Sherman were both there and he said look there's a controversy going on about the uh, polio vaccine and I've known Jonas Salk for 20 years and I've followed this every step of the way and I'm invested in this and I guarantee you this thing is safe and I would never ask you to do anything that I was not willing to do and so right then and there in front of the entire faculty uh, Oshner inoculated his grandson and granddaughter with the Salk polio vaccine produced by the Cutter Laboratory. And in 48 hours, his grandson was dead and his granddaughter had polio. So I, I wish I had Salk's PR people working for me, okay? Because Salk's polio vaccine blew up in the launch pad. It was withdrawn after two weeks. And Salk himself was given a plaque on the White House lawn and allowed to go retire to the Bluffs of California in La Jolla uh, at the Salk Institute. And um, they went for the next six months without a vaccine. And then Albert Sabin, who is a competitor to Salk, says, you know, you don't need to deal with that dangerous polio heavy. You can use polio light. It causes an immune response. And so that's the safe thing to do. And so he um, set up the Sabin vaccine, which was originally injected with a syringe, but later became the famous sugar cube um, vaccine of the 1950s and early 60s. And um, the problem was that both of those vaccines were grown on monkey kidney cells. And as we discussed earlier in this show, that the, the vaccine itself was contaminated with all of the monkey uh, viruses that were in there. Um, and we have talked about SV40 being the major contaminant. But one of the problems with these monkey labs is they were caging monkeys from different continents together. So the rhesus monkey from Asia was being caged in the same cage with African green monkeys. And they started cross-infecting each other. And so... While SB40 was native to the um, rhesus monkey, SIV, the simian immunodeficiency virus, was native to the African green monkey. And so that virus got into the vaccine also. Now, there's kind of a near miss that goes on in what I call the propaganda of all this, where they, they take something that is almost true but easy to disprove and and you get stories like, oh, HIV was in the polio vaccine. No, HIV was not in the polio vaccine. But SIV, the ancestor virus to HIV, was in the polio vaccine. Now, here comes the problem. When you start taking the test tubes and putting them in front of a beam of radiation, and you start using gamma ray radiation, which is capable of mangling the genetic structure of all these things, you're not only hitting the... Um, SV40 that's in there, you're also hitting the SIV that's in there. And, and that's, to me, a real concern. Now, what is the point of using a linear particle accelerator, which is a radiation beam, to mutate monkey viruses? What are they trying to do? Okay, beautiful question. I just said there's polio heavy, medium, and light. Okay, so they had three flavors to work with. In the case of the cancer-causing monkey virus, SB40, all they have is heavy. They don't have a weaker strain. So what they're trying to do is to create a benign strain 
just like Sabin used, like a, a SV40 light that they can use in a vaccine, um, according to the model that Sabin used. But they don't have it. They've got to get it to mutate. And the way you get things to mutate is you expose them to radiation. Well, what does now? Doesn't mutating a virus make it more dangerous than less dangerous? Someone once described it as shooting a gun into a computer. You're going to change something, but you don't know what. You don't know if you're going to make it more dangerous or less dangerous. It could go either way. It's easier to see the more dangerous stuff because they tend to be more aggressive and the other stuff just kind of hangs out. But they can go both ways. And they were, in my view, they were looking for the benign strain of the SP40 light in 60 and 61 when they started this. And it wasn't until the, um, the the Russian missiles got involved and the CIA got involved at a different level in this that they decided to turn it into a um, biological weapon. Right. Do you think that the objective of the secret cancer research, and this is what we're talking about here, a secret cancer research project, being conducted at the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital, operated by the U.S. military, uh, and the secret underground laboratory of David Ferries that we've talked about that was in a residential neighborhood in New Orleans, do you think the objective was twofold? One, to create a vaccine to fight cancer, and two, to develop a fast-acting cancer bioweapon to kill Fidel Castro. I mean, those yes, are but, two, but, two opposite projects. Right, but not at the same time. In 1960, they found out about this problem in 1959, about the contamination of the polio vaccine and, and the fear of the cancer epidemic. In 1960 and 61, and when they spent the millions of dollars to put the um, linear particle accelerator in that facility, they were only looking for an anti-cancer vaccine. It was not a dual purpose initially. It wasn't until several years later when the Russian missiles got involved in the conversation that they um, turned it around and started making a biological weapon out of it. It's not necessarily the same people who were aware that they were doing that because they took they buried the um, uh, labs in safe houses, like at David Ferry's apartment and, and uh, the mice uh, from across the street, in places that people didn't even know they were there. And so the number of people that knew about the weaponization of the um, um, cancer-causing monkey viruses was very small, and it was not in the initial... Um, what I'll what I call heroic phase of this, where they were actually there trying to create a uh, anti-cancer vaccine. Now, Dr. Mary Sherman, uh, a prestigious orthopedic surgeon, pathologist, one of America's leading cancer researchers, she obviously was trained and operated this linear particle accelerator. Was she involved in both the benign and the bioweapon project, in your view? Yes, I think she was, and you made a comment about her being trained to handle. She was not operating the machine initially in the 1960 and 61 phase. And, in fact, she had just um, come back for the two weeks before her death, 
she was in Boston, Massachusetts, which is where high-voltage engineering is located. And I think what she's doing up there is getting trained to operate the equipment because they want to continue using this even beyond um, this. This is almost approaching the third phase of it, uh, where they're finished with the bioweapon phase. She was involved in the bioweapon thing to kill Fidel Castro, right? She got into it because she worked for Alt Nochner, and Alt Nochner thought uh, Castro was going to start World War III, and the only way we could stop World War III was to get rid of Castro. It's kind of back to the Hitler and Havana argument. It's kind of like, would you have killed Hitler if you had the chance? You know, And they, they thought, for whatever reason, and it looks different in hindsight, but at the time, at the, with the hysteria of the Cold War, there was a lot of interest in killing Castro, particularly in New Orleans. So Dr. Mary Sherman really got involved with the linear particle accelerator just like a couple of uh, weeks before she died. Is that right? Well, she was, she was involved with it, but somebody else was running it back in the 60s and 61. And remember, she goes back to the University of Chicago and Rico Fermi and all that stuff. And, and my, my mother knew Mary, okay? And, and when I started to get into this, I, I asked my mother, I, I said, you know, what... What's going on in Mary's head? Why would she be involved in a project like this? You know, because everybody knows her. I mean, she loves, she's an opera singer. She loves flowers. You know, she's uh, um, works a lot with children. And, and uh, I, I see a, a side of her that, that is not like a witch trying to develop a new form of life, you know. And so I said to my mother, what's going on with this? And she said, if Mary thought that she could and run the bureaucracy and develop a cure for cancer without a bunch of red tape, she would do it. And so, you know, I, I think that's a pretty clean read on, on Mary. I mean, if anything, Mary was a liberal. You know, she was not into um, it, it, the right-wing political culture of New Orleans, and she was very into theater and the arts, and, and I have spoken to um, black people who knew her, who just had the utmost respect for her and, and uh, said how nicely she treated everybody and all that stuff. And so the idea of, I mean, she's definitely involved in this, but her motive of why she's involved in it, I think she's trying to learn something about cancer so they can get rid of it, uh, is her motive. But she's part of an operation being run by Alk Noshner, who's like... Uh, uh, whacked out anti-communist. I'm speaking with author and researcher Edward Haslam. Today's show, Dr. Mary's Monkey, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, you also mentioned in your book that uh, Mary Sherman did not trust Dr. Oshner. Well, the thing she didn't trust about him is he thought... That, this is a guy with... Uh, I'm going to say a lot of hubris. You know, he, he's he's got a lot of power in his life, and he thinks he can do anything, okay? And one of the things he thinks he can do is he thinks he can control who gets their hands on this biological weapon and, and what they do with it. And and Mary is more cynical than that. And what actually happens to the biological weapon, where does it go after the, the patient is killed? Well, the, the, the patient's injected on August... 
29th, and suddenly Lee Oswald stops doing any communist-looking stuff. He goes back home to his house on Magazine Street, and for the month of September, he sits around in his flip-flops and Bermuda shorts and reads on the pad- on the porch. Okay, What's he doing? He's waiting for the patient to die. And the moment the patient up in Jackson dies, the moment he gets the word of that, he takes the bioweapon that he's been keeping um, fresh, whose Judy taught him how to do that, and he takes it to Mexico City. And the problem, it, it, it's very interesting when you read the Warren Report on this, and they say, okay, he went there by bus, and there's, I mean, this is a guy who hasn't worked in six weeks, right? Where's he getting the money to go to Mexico City, all right? And he's taking the bus from New Orleans to Houston, and then Houston to Laredo, and then Laredo to Mexico City. Well, the FBI, in their normal thing, they go and interview everybody, and they find a dozen witnesses who see him on the the second and third leg of the trip, but nobody sees him on the bus on the first leg of the trip. And so what's going on there? Well, that night, Lee talks to Judy and says, I had an interesting day. Uh, I was driven down to the Ahoma Terrebonne um, blimp base, and there was a plane waiting for me. It was a twin-engine plane um, owned by Schlumberger, and they flew me from New Orleans to Austin, Texas, where I had to do some stuff, and um, even said he went into the governor's office, not necessarily meet with the governor, but somebody in there gave him some money, and then they flew him up to Dallas, and then they flew him down to Houston, and then he, in Houston, right before he gets on the bus for Laredo, they say, oh, we got some fresh sauce for you. And they've got an identical package to the one he's been carrying around, and they say, this will work better than that old stuff you've been carrying around in the heat all day. So he leaves the biological weapon with these people in Sugar Land, Texas, and continues to uh, Mexico City, perhaps with just chicken soup. We don't, we don't even know if he took the biological weapon down there or not, but he thought he had it. Uh, and that's what goes on in these intelligence games, is, is they do stuff like that. And... So Lee then, of course, goes back up to, to Dallas. Judy's in Florida this entire time. She's got her suitcase packed, and she's ready to <laughs> uh, disappear. And, and then, of course, she watches Lee get murdered on television, and which just wrecks her life, basically. What I don't understand is that I thought that it had been established in the research into the Kennedy assassination that the Lee Harvey Oswald who showed up in Mexico City was an imposter. Wasn't this at some uh, embassy? The photos that the CIA provided of, quote, Lee Harvey Oswald in Mexico City were not of Lee Harvey Oswald, okay? And the tape recordings were not, and um, that's been very well established. That doesn't mean Lee was not in Mexico City, though I've raised the question for, for years, would somebody please show me some proof that he was actually there? But um, he apparently went down there with the bioweapon to hand it off, and his contact didn't show, and the whole thing was a disaster, and he even tried to figure out how to get in the Cuba himself, and, and that's where you get all these reports of him with the embassies and stuff. The Mexico City thing is, is a really, first of all, it's not in my book, okay? It's in Judy's book, um, me and Lee. But it's what happens to the weapon after they test it on the patient in, in New Orleans. And it's just about the time 
that happens is right when Mary comes back in town. So Mary, the entire time that the prisoner is dying of cancer, Mary's in London. And what they have in London, right outside of London, in Oxford, is the other linear particle accelerator with the platinum pyramid. And um, so I find it odd if these are the only two places on the planet that has one of these that one of the doctors involved in one of them is shuttling back and forth to the other ones. Well, yes, and I just wanted to clarify, or maybe you should clarify, that there are uh, many different designs of linear particle accelerators, and they would be designed for specific uses. And the ones, the two that you were describing, the one uh, in in England and the one in New Orleans, were specifically designed to do these sort of uh, mutations, right? Yeah, uh, let me talk about, I mean, that's a great point, and let me talk about a couple of uh, things there. Uh, one of the uses of these linear particle accelerators is to take imperfect yellow diamonds that have sulfur in them, right? And they're able to strip the sulfur out from inside the diamond with the radioactive beam. So you find some of these particle accelerators down in South Africa where they're cleaning up the diamonds to make them marketable. Another application was um, when they started building bowling alleys and there were, um, they wanted to cross-bond the wood and they had to shoot the radiation through the wood to make it. That was a commercial use of uh, linear particle accelerators. Usually in medicine, when they're going to burn a tumor or something, you've got clinical access features where people have, you know, wheelchairs or gurneys can be brought in uh, for people to access things. Uh, but these two facilities in New Orleans and in Oxford were designed specifically for vaccine research, and they both had this uh, strange design with the platinum pyramids. What I want to do here is to connect the idea of this linear particle accelerator to the murder of Mary Sherman, because we know Mary's arm got burned off. And the reason they didn't tell the public Mary's arm got burned off is they did not want people going around looking for a 5 million volt machine capable of burning off her arm because that laboratory was the medical Manhattan Project that was so secret. And when you get to, well, what's the motive here? Why was Mary Sherman murdered? If you're going to kill somebody, you can shoot them or stab them or poison them or whatever. There are many easier ways of doing it than blowing off their arm with a linear particle accelerator. What sabotaging the linear particle accelerator does is call attention to the facility and punish the people involved. Okay, So on one hand, Mary Sherman herself might not even have been the target. I mean, imagine if Alt Noshner had grabbed the handle or somebody else had grabbed the handle. They, they were able to drag Mary Sherman back to her apartment because she was an out-of-town widow that did not have family in town. They couldn't have done that to Alt Noster. They did that to Mary Sherman because they could get away with it. And what that did was that changed the jurisdiction of the murder from FBI to NOPD. Now, I find this very interesting. I mean, that's what moving it from federal property to her house did. I have a memo dated 10 days after Mary Sherman's murder, written by J. Edgar Hoover, telling his agents not to investigate the Mary Sherman murder on grounds of jurisdiction. Now, do you, and, think, do you think that the linear particle accelerator was sabotaged? 
causing the incineration of Dr. Mary Sherman? I, I personally do, uh, because that type of equipment has a lot of safety stuff in it. I mean, the guys that design it know what they're doing when they design it, and something happened that was just um, totally outside the box that blew off her arm. I think what they did was when the safety switch, the off-on switch was in the off position, that they cut the cable, removed the insulation, and wrapped the steel part of the conduit around the copper part of the cable. So the moment you turned it on, the electricity would go down the copper thing into the steel thing and back up to the handle and then jump from the handle to the steel wall, blowing out her arm in the, in the meantime. I think it was that simple, that fast, and it was intended to disrupt the whole operation there. This is where I, I when you get into the motive of who did this, it becomes important that this is all done on the day the Warren Commission is starting its investigation into Oswald in New Orleans. And Oswald's got cards on him from the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital. And the, and the other issue is this, is on that J. Edgar Hoover memo, on page two of it, in this note that Hoover might not even have been aware that's in there, they say, you know, Mary Sherman, world-class expert, blah, 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 arm and rib cage totally burned away. Next sentence somebody's name was found in Mary Sherman's address book. Well, that's where you find names, all right, but why tell the head of the FBI about it? And Why did the FBI say, oh, my gosh, tell the boss we found so-and-so's name in Mary Sherman's address book right when the Warren Commission is in New Orleans? Well, so-and-so's name is, is redacted, and it's only six letters long. I can tell that by the amount of redaction. So there's no first name there. So the head of the FBI is going to know this guy by his last name. And I now have two witnesses who saw Lee Oswald in Mary Sherman's apartment, and one of them saw Mary Sherman talking to Lee Oswald, and that Mary Sherman telephoned Lee Oswald on several occasions. So I appeal to the FBI with Freedom of Information, JFK Records Act. I said, guys, I know you're busy, but I want one word. They said, we're not telling you. Go to the Department of Justice. And I go through all the paperwork, and I appeal to the Department of Justice. And what happens is they say, we don't have to tell you, and we're not going to tell you. And so we're told we have all this new openness and stuff, and I'm saying 50 years later, all I want to know is one word, and they won't tell me. So we are not being told the story. And, I mean, it's just like the CIA's family jewel thing where they'll tell us jewels two, three, four, five, six, seven, and 8, but they have jewel number 1, and I have this in my book, 100% redacted. This is all three pages of text. And this is for a window of time from 1958 to 1964, which is exactly where I'm talking about. So, you know, the secret keeping is over the top. It is unnecessary, and they're not willing to tell us what they did 50 years ago because it still embarrasses them. And I'm saying, well, is it this stuff that I've been researching? You know, if if you've got the evidence in that file, I'd like to know about it. Well, now, as you've just said, the Warren Commission came to New Orleans to take testimony in the JFK assassination investigation the following morning after Dr. Sherman's murder. So no, what, the same day morning. Well, yes, I guess that's right, yeah. because she would have died when? In the, in the wee hours? 
Well, that's a great question. I think she died on Monday night, July 20th, um, and was not discovered until 4 a.m. July 21st. And the reason for that is, one of the reasons is the rigor mortis that is obviously set into her left arm, um, which you can see in the crime scene photos. And the other thing is the autopsy said she had undigested food in her stomach, which means she would have had to die within two hours of eating the stuff. So that puts it all back on Monday night. And we have this other issue with Stanley Stumpf, um, the uh, doctor at Oshner, who was Mary Sherman's resident, who shows up at Oshner and he goes into the, on his day off and goes back into the supply room behind the ER and gets something and leaves. And apparently, he got the uh, body bag to bring her back to her apartment with it. And so that's another thing that's in the um, in the book. I'm speaking with author and researcher Edward Haslam. Today's show: Doctor Mary's Monkey, Part Two. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Do you uh, then think that Mary Sherman was uh, fried by radioactivity while she was alone operating the linear particle accelerator and only discovered later, like in the wee hours of Tuesday morning? No, I think she was with someone. The question is, do I think Mary Sherman was alone on Monday night when she was damaged by the linear particle accelerator? Uh, no, I I don't. And one of the reasons is because her um, domestic housekeeper, if you will, her maid, um, said that she was expecting someone from out of town, a lady from out of town. And when the whole murder thing was, uh, crime scene was investigated, in the laundry hamper of Mary Sherman's bathroom, they found some bloodstained ladies' gloves. And so I think Mary Sherman took her lady friend out to dinner and they went over to the uh, U.S. Public Health Service Hospital. The uh, identity of the um, lady friend would be, in my opinion, my best guess is Sarah Stewart. If I had to go track somebody down, Sarah Stewart's no longer alive, but it would be Sarah Stewart, who was Mary's friend from the University of Chicago. It was Sarah Stewart who always believed that cancer was caused by viruses. She's the one that discovered polyoma, and she's the one who which was transferred to the U.S. Public Health Service in 1960 so that she would be in charge of this facility. I also had a, um, a very interesting but off-the-record phone call, I mean, conversation with someone. That I can't tell you who it was, but the thing that I was talking about, Mary Sherman, this was a long time ago, back in the 70s, and I was talking about how important she was and how well-known she was. And the guy kind of heard me out and said, yeah, she was important and she was well-known but she was not the one that everyone was afraid of. He said there was this other woman who had the ability to quarantine the city. Now, think about quarantining New Orleans. That means no ships, no airplanes, no trains, no cars, no trucks, nothing. You seal off the city. And the only people that have that power are the public health people. So it's to me, my best guess is that Sarah Stewart was coming in town that night. Mary was going to take her over to the laboratory, show her what happened. They walk in, and the moment that Mary throws the flips the switch from the uh, off position to the on position, that safety handle, 
um, all of a sudden the electricity comes back into her arm in a flash bulb of violence. So it's Sarah Stewart who's probably with her. She's a big shot, so others may have been there with her too. I mean, Stanley Stumpf may have been with her. Stanley was Mary's resident. Oshner may have been there with her, or he may have quickly been called over there. Um, what I think is important about Stanley Stumpf, since his name came up in it, um, was that Stanley was a big athlete. He, he lettered in basketball and baseball at, at Tulane University for several years. He was 6'4". So he had the strength to carry Mary Sherman's um, body up the stairs in a body bag where uh, either Oshner or Sarah Stewart, um, Sarah, Sarah was 59 or so at the time, and Oshner was in his 70s already. So they needed a, a hunk to carry the body up the uh, stairs, and Stanley would have been that person. So that's, you know, that's a possible scenario for how Stanley fits into this. Do you have any uh, best guess as to uh, who the sabotage of the linear particle accelerator was aimed at? Um I'm down to two candidates, and I, I don't really like to say who they are in the air, but I'll talk about the subject a little bit. Uh, if you say, all right, the target is, is not really Mary because they could have shot her in her parking lot and driven off, all right? They sabotage the equipment. Sabotaging the equipment calls the attention to the facility. And then the questions start. If, if you get the ambulances and stuff coming to the facility and the press there, then they want to know, what is this facility? Why, why didn't we know about it? Why is it secret in the first place? What are you doing in there and why? Well, by the time you get finished explaining, oh, we're in here mutating monkey viruses because we mass inoculated the entire population of America, <laughs> the children, with a cancer-causing virus, um, heads start to roll. In, in, in fact, when, when, when Salk's thing blew up, they fired Oveta Javi, who was the uh, secretary of HEW, plus the entire management of the National Institutes of Health. If this thing had come out in New Orleans, then you say, well, who knows about this, and when was this done, and where did the money come from? And the trail leads back to people like Richard Nixon. And when you have things like Oswald's uh, fake ID cards coming from that facility, and you establish that Oswald was somehow either part of this operation or spying on it, then this whole idea of Oswald as a lone nut uh, evaporates, and therefore the legitimacy of LBJ starts to evaporate. And so what you're left with is, I mean, it's almost like House of Cards. It's a wicket. It's, it's a manipulation of all this in a struggle for control of the White House is my best guess on it. It could also be Castro just mad about them um, trying to poison him and his brother and all that stuff and, and striking back. So I don't really know who the who's are, but I think that the, the logic behind it says these are really powerful people and this is a really wicked game of chess that they're playing. And Mary just happened to be the one who got caught in the middle of it. Wow, yeah, what you're saying sounds very, very credible. And with regard to the uh, manufacture of a bioweapon, a fast-acting cancer, 
Uh, could you talk a little bit about Jack Ruby, who assassinated Lee Harvey Oswald in the Dallas Police Department? Now, he was concerned himself, and didn't he tell someone that he was uh, that he thought he had been injected with a fast-acting cancer? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for the question because I'm glad we have a chance to talk about it. And it was the question that was asked to Garrison back in '67 that led to that uh, that comment in the Playboy magazine. Jack Ruby knew all about the bioweapon. He was um, a bag man bringing money down to it from Dallas. Uh, he was in David Ferry's apartment with Judith Baker, with Lee Oswald, and they all talked about it. Jack Ruby knew Lee Oswald since he was a kid. You know, and Lee Oswald grew up in the mafia in New Orleans, if you don't know that. This idea of him as a lone nut with no connections to anybody is absolutely absurd. Okay. Now, second point, Ruby died 28 days after he was diagnosed with cancer. He had this wonderful Chinese-American physician taking care of him, and then they told the Chinese-American, his name's Marduk, they told Dr. Marduk one day that they don't need him anymore to take care of Ruby. they got somebody else coming in. And shortly after that, Ruby is diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and there are stories about Ruby being left in a room with radiation to lower his immune system and some of that stuff. But what we know on the official record is from the day Ruby was diagnosed to the day Ruby died was 28 days. That just happens to be the same length of time that the bioweapon took to kill the patient up in Jackson, Louisiana. Next point, Ruby passed a note to his guard and said he was injected with cancer. Now, this is significant because Ruby knows about the injectable cancer because David Ferry told him about it. He was financing David Ferry's operation down there on behalf of some other people, but he was the bag man running the money down there. And and then finally, I talked to Jim Mars one night. You know, Jim's the author of Crossfire, which is a New York Times bestseller. He's uh, one of the sources of Oliver Stone's JFK movie, along with Garrison's book. And Jim used to teach a college-level course on um, the JFK assassination, and he had a guy come take the course who operated an electron microscope for a living. And he was used to looking at cells of cancer things. And basically, there's this type of cell and that type of cell, and they're never in the same cancer. Okay? But Jack Ruby's cancer had both of those types of cells in it, implying that it was a mixture of something that had been injected into him. And so I think the idea that Ruby was killed to shut him up and if you look at the the last videos of Ruby, you know, because people did make videos of him, and he is very clearly saying, I was set up in this by very powerful people, and I want to get out of town so I can talk about it, because if I stay here, they're going to kill me. And they did. And, and that's what happened to Jack Ruby. He he died uh, just like Lee did in the um, in Dallas in the custody of police. Ed, do you have any closing remarks about this incredible case of uh, Dr. Mary Sherman? Well, Bonnie, I'm delighted to talk about this on the radio, but with that comes the understanding that there's a reason I wrote a 
page book about this, and it's thoroughly documented, and, and all the footnotes are there. And, and I approached it like I was doing a master thesis. Um, we can talk about the, the top line on it, but the real detail that drives the story is in the book, in the documents that I put in there. And the most powerful documents that really tell you what's going on are the photographs of Dr. Mary Sherman um, after she was electrocuted. When you see those, you will just see that this was not a mattress fire, and they covered it up because they were protecting the medical Manhattan Project over at the U.S. Public Health Service. So there's a lot to this, and and the whole thing with um, Mary is just... I look at it as Walt Whitman's blade of grass. You know, if you understand this blade of grass totally, you'll understand how the universe works. If you understand the Mary Sherman murder thoroughly, you'll understand so much about what was going on in the 50s and 60s, politically and medically. And It is the keystone event, as far as I'm concerned, which is why we call it the hottest cold case in America. I mean, that's just not a marketing term. We really believe that in terms of this thing is something that needs to be looked at freshly and newly, and we just have to have the courage to do it. You know, to me, what's important about this story is democracy does not work, period, if the people voting don't know what happened and who did what, okay? If we don't know that, we're flying blind. The best thing I can do is try to shine some light on the skeleton in the national closet and say it's time we got honest about this and started talking about this because there's been way too much paid no attention to the man behind the curtain. And, and by the way, I occasionally get the question, who was Dr. Mary's monkey? I was waiting to find out about Dr. Mary's monkey, and you never specifically mentioned it. Uh, what was Dr. Mary's monkey? Well, from my perspective, Dr. Mary's monkey was the prisoner in Jackson, Louisiana, who got experimented on and died because of it. It was just like killing a monkey in a monkey lab, but it was a human. Oh, I see. Edward Haslam, thank you so very much. Bonnie, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to hearing your show. I've been speaking with Edward Haslam. Today's show has been Dr. Mary's Monkey, Part 2. Edward Haslam is an independent writer and researcher. He spent the first 35 years of his life growing up in New Orleans and working in the arts. He spent the rest of his professional career as an advertising executive representing some of the largest corporations in America. In the 1990s, he began work on a research project known as Mary, Fairy, and the Monkey Virus, the story of an underground medical laboratory. He is the author of Dr. Mary's Monkey, How the Unsolved Murder of a Doctor, a Secret Laboratory in New Orleans, and Cancer-Causing Monkey Viruses are linked to Lee Harvey Oswald, the JFK assassination, and emerging global epidemics. A new hardback edition updated with groundbreaking new information and photographs 
was released on July 21st, 2014. Visit his website at drmarysmonkey.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-M-A-R-Y-S-M-O-N-K-E-Y dot C-O-M. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-O-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. Peace.